Christian Medical and Dental Association of Nigeria Students Arm presents the maiden edition of online conferences, Prayer and Missions Conference 2020, with the theme, Arrows in His Quiver. Three platforms, 16 speakers, delegates from all across Nigeria and overseas. It was a life-changing experience for many. Brace up as you listen to power-packed messages and parallel sessions on issues pertaining to Christian Medic. God bless you as you listen. Let's, Let's welcome, welcome our speaker. speaker. Today, um, we're just going to have a very short training session on what to do if you have someone become unconscious right in front of you. So that's what our training session is going to be. And in less than 30 minutes, I would love to just go through what you do. I'm an emergency physician, and I'm a member of CMDA FCT chapter. We've been called as Christian medics to be proficient to care for the whole man, spirit, soul, and body. And what that means is that we need to attain a high level of proficiency to care for this whole man. So today, the area we'll be focusing on is what to do when someone collapses right in front of you. Um, we are Christians. We're also medical doctors. We're also medics. So the question is, if someone collapses right in front of you, first question I'd like to ask is, what do you do? So are you going to break forth in tongues and then start sprinkling water and olive oil? which is a common practice in this part of the world, or would you break forth in tongues and then still allow God to walk through your hands? So which of them would you do? That's the question. So today we want to know what to do. Um, the online session is not enough in any way to do justice to this topic, but we'll see how much of it we can go. And at the end of the day, I hope to make recommendations, which I hope... Help us now. Most of us have seen the video that trended was it last week um, about the hearing session uh, about the session in the when someone became unconscious and then um, someone else wanted to revive him by trying to put his fingers right into the person's mouth to tear the jaw open as if it's like Samson when Samson decided to fight against the the lion. Now, it's embarrassing. It's actually disappointing. A lot of us found it funny, but it's actually disappointing that that happened and more disappointing to know that it was a colleague of ours who was attempting to do that resuscitation. Can we move over to the next slide? There's a, a picture that, that is going to come up on your screen. Yes. Thank you very much. So if you look at this picture very well, I think it was some young man who went for a party. This happened in Ghana the University of Ghana, um, Legon. A young man went to a party and um, I think he drowned. And so the lifeguard, he became unconscious afterwards. The lifeguard brought him out from the swimming pool and that was actually what was happening. Um, I don't know if you can identify anything wrong with what is exactly going on. And can you tell me what is the effects of this action on this victim. 
maybe at the end of the um, training, I will get back to this and so that we can talk about it more in detail. We'll get back to this particular picture, but let's move on. So today, what I want to do is just to talk about what you should do when someone becomes unconscious. Next slide. Yeah, someone says CPR on abdomen. Very good. CPR on an abdomen. And I would like to also know what is the effect of CPR on the abdomen. So today, I just want to talk about what is cardiac arrest. Then talk about all the objectives you've seen, the adult chain of survival, the critical concepts in resuscitation, the sequence in BLS, chest compressions, airway breathing, and then talk about defibrillation, and then we'll take it from there. So next slide. So who can tell me what is CPR? Who requires CPR? What is cardiac arrest? And is cardiac arrest the same as heart attack? The first, I'd like to start with the last one. Is cardiac arrest the same as heart attack? So sometimes you see people use these words interchangeably, but they actually don't mean the same thing. Heart attack occurs when there's a blockage in one of the coronary arteries or its branches. So it leads to chest pain. And if not reversed or if not managed properly, cardiac um, heart attack can, can lead to cardiac arrest. So in other words, heart attack is one of the causes of cardiac arrest, but is not the same as cardiac arrest. Now, I've seen uh, a post where someone says, if you're having cardiac arrest, take deep breaths, cough repeatedly. If you're having cardiac arrest, you cannot be coughing, you cannot be taking deep breaths, because by definition, cardiac arrest is a sudden cessation of the function of the heart, characterized by three things. Absent um, breathing, absence of pulses, and unresponsiveness. So when you're unresponsive, you have no pulses, and you're not breathing, we say the person is in cardiac arrest. And the one who has cardiac arrest is the one who requires CPR. And by definition, CPR means cardiopulmonary resuscitation. All right, so CPR means cardiopulmonary resuscitation, implying that there's a cardiac component and a pulmonary component to it. Who requires CPR? Someone in cardiac arrest. And we've already answered the question, cardiac arrest is not the same as heart attack. Heart attack is one of the 10 causes of cardiac arrest. All right, next slide. So we have facts about CPR. 80% of hospitalized patients who had in-hospital cardiac arrest had signs to show that they will have cardiac arrest. And the unfortunate thing is that this cardiac arrest was documented eight hours before the actual arrest. This signs that the patient will have cardiac arrest was documented eight hours before the actual arrest. And it happened in 80% of hospitalized patients. So why is it that we had, we knew that this number of patients, eight hours before they went into cardiac arrest, they were going to have cardiac arrest, but nothing was done for actually up to eight hours. That tells you there's something wrong in our system. The second fact is that with bystander CPR, there's a 40% success rate with a 10% survival rate. A teacher of mine will always say to him that is affected, it is 100%. So you might say 10% survival rate, but if it is your loved one that is in that 10%, to you it becomes 
100%. Now, when there's in-hospital cardiac arrest, survival rate is up to 23%. That tells you that you being able to play a role, whether out of hospital or in hospital, resuscitating someone who is unconscious would actually play a major part in making sure that the person survives. When you do nothing, it's a 0%. But when you do something, you come from 40% all the way to 23%. So your actions or inactions can determine this victim's outcome. And it may be a loved one, it may be a friend, and we need to know what to do. Next slide, please. These are some of the footballers that we know. On my left, down left, you have Samuel Okwaraji. Um, you also have uh, William Defoe for the uh, football enthusiast. I hope you remember these players. Um, all of them at the corners have one thing in common, and all of them had cardiac arrest while in the field of play. Now, this doesn't mean that it only happens in sports. It happens everywhere. But this is just to illustrate the point. Now, last year, yeah, I think last year, there was a, this video that went viral about someone in Nasrawa United football field that collapsed. And then someone raised his leg and was tapping the leg. I didn't want to bring in all those videos because I didn't want us to get distracted from the focus of today's um, training. I don't know if we all saw that. And someone was tapping the foot. Now, the four people you see in the corner, they all have one thing in common. They all had cardiac arrest while in the field of play. They were playing football, they now slumped, and they died. And unfortunately, the four of them did not survive it. But the man in the middle, some of us football enthusiasts would know about him. He had cardiac arrest, he slumped while in the field of play, and his name is Fabrice Muamba. He slumped while in the field of play, and he collapsed. And he took the cardiologist, who just came to watch a football, who was siding the opposing team, ran out from the stands and came to resuscitate this man. This man was resuscitated on the field for 90 minutes. And today he's alive and he's healthy. If the cardiologist was not there, who knows? He might have gone the way of the other ones. So you two can actually be the one that will determine whether someone lives or someone dies. Personally, in my profession, I've had several testimonies of people who came in in cardiac arrest and they, we, we resuscitated them and eventually they are living till today. Not all of them were successful, but definitely some were successful. So we'll continue. Next slide. So we're here to teach you what you can do to make sure that someone who has a cardiac arrest survives. So there's what we call the chain of survival. And that is what is depicted on your screen. We say that the chain of survival, every chain is as strong as the weakest link. If there's a problem in the link, then the chances of someone surviving from a, um, a cardiac arrest is minimal. So the first you have is um, out of hospital. That's, I'm talking about the chain below. The first one is the IHCA, which is also known as the in-hospital cardiac arrest, while the one below is the out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. For the out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, which is what I'm going to focus on right now, the first link is recognition and activation of the emergency um, 
um, response system, recognizing that someone is in cardiac arrest. So when someone collapses, the first job you have is to recognize that this person is in cardiac arrest. In a short while, I'll be teaching on how to recognize someone is in cardiac arrest. Once you've recognized it, then the next thing is to activate emergency response. We go to the second link where you see the hands, knuckles, you know, um, knocked together. If you've confirmed this person is in cardiac arrest, the first thing to do is, the next thing to do is to start your compressions, followed by rapid defibrillation. And while you're doing that, you're transporting the person safely to the hospital for advanced um, life support. The links on the top of your screen, you will see something that looks like um, magnifying glass, surveillance and, prevalent, uh, and prevention. What that means is that when you're in the hospital, the idea is to make sure you have, you have an ego eye over your patients and that you try to ascertain that these people can deteriorate and go into cardiac arrest. Therefore, you mount surveillance on them and you try and prevent it. If someone is hypoxic, for example, you want to give the person oxygen or you want to reverse the cost of his hypoxia because you know that if you do not do that, the patient will go into cardiac arrest. I had a patient just before I came in and they wanted to take the patient for a CT scan. And this person's oxygen saturation was 80%. I had to insist, please take this patient to the CT scan with oxygen. Because I've seen that just depriving someone of oxygen for just five minutes can make the person become unconscious and actually die. It is that important. That's why I'm saying mountain surveillance and prevention. I give another example. Someone is in shock, hemorrhagic shock or hypovolemic shock. Then you set up fields and you go and document. You go and continue writing what you're writing. Do you follow up to know whether that field is actually flowing? Do you follow up to know whether that blood is flowing? You might just leave it and the thing is just dropping quietly. Meanwhile, this person is a shock and requires the fluid or the blood to go in rapidly. So when you look at this, you find out that you really need to mount surveillance to make sure that the patient doesn't downwards, doesn't hit a downward spiral into cardiac arrest or a state of unconsciousness. Next slide, please. All right, so the first thing is the adult chain of survival is immediate recognition of cardiac arrest and activation of the emergency response system. So you need to be able to recognize it. You need to start CPR early, undergo rapid defibrillation, then effective advanced life support. And like I said, I know someone is going to ask me, what if you don't have a defibrillator? We'll get to that point. All right, so next slide. So like I also mentioned, this is for in-hospital cardiac arrest. You have to do surveillance and prevention of cardiac arrest with patient monitoring. All right, so let's proceed. So this is actually the chain of survival. Now we're going to learn how to put this chain of survival into practice. For pediatric chain of survival, because children most likely have respiratory arrest before cardiac arrest, we want to prevent them from having cardiac arrest. If you've ever seen a newborn, you see newborns that are not breathing, they're not crying, they're not breathing, but their hearts are beating. 
the heart is beating rather. The heart beats for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, non-stop, and yet the child can't breathe. That tells you that for the um, pediatric category, they usually develop respiratory arrest before the heart stops. So at the time a child has respiratory arrest, that is the time to prevent, to reverse that respiratory arrest, because if you don't reverse it, the heart is going to stop. Now, that means that anything that affects a child's breathing or a child's um, airway will lead to cardiac arrest, so you need to reverse it quickly. All right, so that's just about the pediatric chain of survival. Next slide. Okay, so this is what we call the sequence, the BLS sequence. Chest compression, airway, breathing. And you can see the first letters highlighted in red. We call it the CAB sequence. I know many of us must have heard about the ABC sequence. Do not confuse the ABC sequence with the CAB sequence. They all have their roles. The ABC sequence is for someone who is conscious and has a pulse. For example, a trauma patient who has a pulse and is conscious. It, not that the person is 15 over 50, but at least the person has a pulse and is responsive. So for them, you start with your airway, your breathing, your circulation, you take it one after the other in order of that priority. But we are saying that once someone has collapsed and you have recognized that this person is in cardiac arrest, you don't go to the airway, you don't go to the breathing, you start chest compressions. Now, that can only happen if you understand what chest compressions is all about what cardiopulmonary resuscitation is all about. So when someone collapses, remember the first link in the chain is to recognize that this person is in cardiac arrest. When you've recognized that, then the next thing would be to activate the emergency response. Simply put, call for help. Once you've recognized it, call for help. And when you're done calling for help, the next thing will be for you to start chest compressions immediately then now go through the um, chain when you get to advanced life support. So next slide. So it's chest compressions first. Later in the course, I'll tell you why is CAB and not ABC. Remember I said ABC is still for those who have a pulse who are responsive. But CAB is for those who are unresponsive, who are, have no pulse and are not breathing. So we start with compressions first. So one could ask, why are we now changing? Why are we saying that CAB should be done for those in cardiac arrest and not ABC? Um, we would, I would answer that question subsequently. So critical concepts in resuscitation. You have to start compressions within 10 seconds of recognition of cardiac arrest. You have to push hard and you have to push fast. A lot of people do not push hard. A lot of people are just caressing the chest and say that they are doing chest compressions. When you do real chest compressions, you will know. You, when you go home, your muscles will tell you. Then you have to allow for chest recall. By chest recall, you need to allow for the chest to come back up again before you push it down again. And you want to minimize interruptions. We'll get to all that. You also want to give effective breaths. And the only way to know that effective breaths have been given is when you see the chest rise with every breath you give. You also want to avoid excessive ventilation. 
that is giving too much breath because that can actually make the person um, that can actually make the person vomit and then obstruct the person's airway. We'll have time to go through the CPR demo, but it will be available on the slide. So these things are easily um, can easily be accessed on um, YouTube so that you can see what a demo means. So the step first step is to make sure your scene is safe even before you approach the patient or the victim. Make sure your scene is safe. For example, someone collapses right in the middle of the road. Are you going to collapse? Are you going to run to the person and resuscitate the person there? Let's assume someone collapses in the burning building. Are you going to rush in there to also resuscitate the person? And now we are in the midst of COVID. I don't want to use the word almighty because almighty is, is reserved for God. But we're in the midst of COVID. So sin safety is important. You don't want to go and resuscitate someone and then get COVID in exchange. You don't want to resuscitate someone and become a victim yourself. You need to make sure your sin is safe and you need to make sure you are safe. So if the person is in the middle of the road, you need your, your first duty is to bring the person to the side of the road before you start resuscitating. Like if um, the person is in a burning building, you want to bring the person out before you start resuscitating. So that is the first thing, sin safety. Once you've made sure that your sin is safe, the next thing is to tap the person and check for response and breathing. Now, at this level, you are at the point of recognizing whether this person is in cardiac arrest. So when we are done with this training, I'm going, to give that, use, I'm going to use that example of what happened in that plenary session to tell us what I would have done if I was there or what you should do if you were the one there. But still it's step one. So you have to tap the person at the shoulders and ask them, hello, hello, can you hear me? Hello, are you all right? Can you hear me? Then you have to scan the victim's chest to see if the person is breathing. Before we used to do the listen, I know, the listen and feel, but we no longer do that. Just look at the chest and see if the chest is rising. That is all you need. Now, if the person is not responding, the person is not breathing. Here we say activate emergency response. Simply what it means, help, help, somebody is in cardiac arrest. Help, help, someone has fainted. I hope you get the point. Check for response, check for breathing. Later in the course, um, we're going to go through what we will do if the person is responding and the person is breathing. But for now, we are starting with checking for response and we are starting with the assumption that this person is not responding and the person is not breathing. So next slide, please. So step two, activating the emergency response. Like I said, simply what it means is shout for help. Help, somebody help. Someone has just collapsed. So, and then you proceed with your CPR. If it's where we have um, emergency numbers working, like ambulance services, all you just need to do is if there's nobody around, you dial that number and then you start your compression. Very soon in Abuja, for those who are in Abuja, we're going to start that service where you can call a number during the emergency. The number can actually tell you what to do and send an ambulance your way. 
So step two is to activate the emergency response. Let's move to step three. Next slide. So for step three, you want to check for pulse. When someone has fainted, you don't check for a radial pulse or a femoral pulse in adults. In adults, you go straight to the carotid. And you check it for not less than five seconds, not more than five seconds. So an easy way to check the carotid pulse is this is your Adam's apple. Then you slide your hand either to the left or to the right. In between the stenocleidomastoid muscle here, your hand will fall into something that looks like a groove. I hope we all can see. And then you press it back. You can use two fingers or three to do that. You just press it back. You first of all find this midline, and then I always like going this way, and then move it. My hand will just fall into a groove. A groove is like a gutter between the sternocleidomastoid and this ring of cartilages here. Your hand falls into that groove. You push it back, and then you're supposed to feel the pulse. So you're not supposed to do it for more than 10 seconds. So the rule of thumb is if your hand is there for five seconds, you can't feel the pulse, or you're not sure whether you feel the pulse, please go ahead and start chest compressions because if your pulse is there, it's there. So I'm going to ask those um, paying attention, just go ahead and see if you can palpate your pulse. If you can't palpate it, um, perhaps you need to call someone to come and start resuscitating you because um, probably you're in cardiac arrest. Never mind, that was supposed to be a joke. All right, next, please. So, where we are now is that we've tapped the shoulder. First of all, we make sure we mark we are safe. We make sure this is not a suspected COVID patient. Uh, we are safe. Then the next thing we've done, after being safe, is to check, tap, and check for response. You've tapped and checked for response. The person is not responding. You've scanned the chest to check for breathing. The person isn't breathing. Then the third thing you've done is you've called for help, no help. Then you've checked for pulse, no pulse. So this person has three characteristics, not responding, not breathing, and has no pulse. So that leads us to step four. Next slide, please. Yes, I'm getting responses that people can feel their pulses. That's very good. You need to learn how to feel a pulse because you could actually just be a, a, stand, um, a bystander and someone collapses and then what do you do? So what you've seen on your screen is just on, um, the, the algorithm, unresponsive, not breathing or no normal breathing. Then you activate emergency response, start your CPR. Like I said, let me, let me touch on that a, um, a little. When we say someone is not breathing, it can mean three things. It means that the person may not be breathing or the person may be gasping or having agonal respiration. One of the things you can do for yourself is to type agonal respiration and see what it looks like. It looks like this. <clears throat> now, when someone is breathing that way, that tells you that that is agonal respiration or the person is gasping. At that point, you need to act. You need to recognize the signs. All right, next slide. So we're talking about chest compressions. So when you're alone, 
you provide 30 compressions and you give two breaths. We're starting with chest compressions and then we'll go to giving breaths, what do, how to give breaths. But we're going to start with chest compressions. We said you have to begin with compressions, how many seconds? In less than 10 seconds from the time of recognizing cardiac arrest. So you see all these things that we said, checking for response, check for breathing, check for pulse, call for help. Those four things have to be done in less than 10 seconds. Because between, um, in, in four minutes, if there's no brain, blood supply to the brain, brain death starts. And if brain death happens, you cannot reverse that death. Okay. So you have to begin with compressions. You have to push hard. You have to push fast. Now, the rate is at least 100 to 120 compressions per minute. And the depth is 5 cm, not more than 6 cm. I'm going to ask this question. Why do we target a rate of 100 to 120 compressions per minute when doing CPR? Why do we target that rate? Why don't we do like 150? Why don't we do like 50? Somebody should just try and, um, try and get an answer to that while I proceed. The depth, at least 5 cm and not more than 6 cm. Someone is going to ask me, how do we know the depth that we're going to compress? Practice makes perfect. And that's why I'm going to start by saying, before you leave school, every medical student, every medic, you're a nurse, you're a paramedic, you're a doctor, please ensure that you go through either a first aid training or a BLS training. We don't, someone said it matches the normal pulse rate. Very good. Normal pulse rate is 80 to 120. So, yeah. So, I agree with I'm having very smart answers. So, one of the things you need to do right now is make sure you undergo first aid. It is a shame that even doctors, sorry, consultants, some people don't know how to do chest compressions. Whereas abroad, it is a crime. Like, people in secondary school know how to do chest compressions. People in secondary school know how to do first aid. There's a lot to first aid than even just chest compressions and CPR. There's how to use the EpiPen. There's how to control bleeding. There's, it has a lot, a lot to do. So the, your starting point is to make sure you do first aid before you leave school and make sure you add on to it with BLS, add on to it with um, ACLS or trauma life support, these are the things that make you an all-rounder, make you an all-round good doctor, even before you decide to sub-specialize. So it doesn't matter whether you're doing ophthalmology, you're doing O and G. I'm talking to young doctors, I'm talking to medical students. One thing you need to do is to do these courses so that at least you will be average as a doctor. If an emergency happens, you know what to do. I don't know how many of us this has happened to you. Maybe you're on a flight. And then someone develops a medical emergency and they say, please, is there any doctor on board? <laughs> I don't know what happens. I mean, some of us get scared. Someone like me, I'll check if I have any like tag on me that may, shows I'm a doctor. I, I try to slide it into my pocket. I don't know if it happened to someone else. It happens to a lot of people. But I've actually had a, you know, one of the, my student that I taught BLS and ACLS, she was on board a Delta airline flight on her way to US from Ghana. And 
someone went into cardiac arrest. She was, you know, she volunteered to help, and they started resuscitating. And they had to do an emergency landing in the nearest airport. And that man is alive till today. So you don't know where it will happen. It can be in a bus. It can be in church. We as doctors, we don't even know these things. And it's amazing because we're, in our churches, we're supposed to organize these things and teach church members, teach people. The other day, it was, I went to Dynamis and I organized that training free of charge. These are things that we should be organizing if you, you have a sister or you have a sibling in a school, you can decide to go to the school and teach them basic first aid, basic CPR, what to do when someone is unconscious. You can imagine, with all the money in the, um, in the legislative house, and that was going on. So we need to be the ones to, you know, push this training forth. But how can we push the training when we, the trainers, are not trained? So let me continue with where we are. So the depth of 5CM, you can only know that when you've actually done real-life chest compression on the mannequin, then that will, help, that will help you know the depth of, the real depth of chest compressions. So you have to also allow for chest recall. Can we pause with the question so that we can, uh, I can continue? Um, and you have to minimize interruptions. So what we mean by allowing for chest recall, I have this bottle here is that when I press this bottle, I should allow it to come back up before I press it again. So if I press it, so if I was doing chest compression, I have to allow it to come up. The reason is that you allow the heart to refill with blood in between your compressions. That's why it's important. You allow the heart to refill with blood in between your compressions. If I do this, the heart will not refill with blood, so I'll just be popping empty, you know, something empty into the, into the circulation. So that's what we mean by allowing for chest recall. And what do we mean by minimizing interruptions? You're doing chest compression and you say, you know what, I'm tired. And then you go. It takes another two minutes for someone to come and relieve you. That is interruption. Or you're doing chest compression. Somebody says, no, 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 I want to set the line. No. Oh, no, no. I don't want to do, let us carry this person into a car and send it to the hospital. Those things are important, right? But you shouldn't interrupt your compressions. Even if you're moving the person inside a car, continue doing your chest compression. Now, if you understand the role of chest compression, you will understand why you need to minimize interruption. So why do we do chest compressions? And why did we say CAB and not ABC? Now, CAB is important because we are saying that if someone is in cardiac arrest, the person's heart is not beating, the person is not breathing, and the person is not responding. Now, if you start giving the person breaths, even if you empty a tank of oxygen into that person, when there is no blood to carry that oxygen to the brain, your work becomes futile. It becomes in vain. So because you know, and secondly, we know that when someone dies, there's still some reserve oxygen left in the person's lungs. So at that point, airway and breathing is not our priority. Our priority is to use chest compressions to carry that leftover reserve oxygen to the brain. 
when you're doing chest compression, what you're doing is that you are manually doing what the heart does automatically. So you're manually replacing the function of the heart with the aim of pumping blood and oxygen to the brain to buy you time to reverse the course of cardiac arrest. That is all you're doing. If the brain doesn't get oxygen, the brain has hypoxia and starts dying. But the only way oxygen can get to the brain is if it is conveyed by blood. So, since we know that immediately someone collapses, there's still some oxygen left. So, when you start doing chest compressions, you carry the remaining oxygen to the person's brain to buy you time to reverse the course of the arrest. So that's why we don't go with ABC, but we do CAB because what the person needs is for blood um, oxygen to be conveyed to the brain through the quickest, shortest route. And the quickest, shortest route is to start with CAB, with compressions. Now, when you started compressions, then you can open the airway in A and give breath in B to replenish the oxygen that is going down. So compressions are actually very important. So how do we perform chest compressions? You place your hand, look at the diagram there, look at that green or bluish um, circle. At the lower half of the breastbone or the sternum, you use the heel of your hand to place on the breastbone like this. And then you make, you clench your hands like this. And when you're compressing, you're straight right above the patient. You do not slant. We will see that in the next slide. So lower half. But wait, hold on. Do not go into the stomach. Avoid the xiphysternum because the xiphysternum, that xiphoid process, that little tip of a bone at the lower part of the breast bone because you will be compressing the stomach. And the danger in compressing the stomach is what we call aspiration. When you compress the stomach, gastric contact will now come out and enter the airway. And that is associated with a very high rate of mortality. You don't want to do that. So make sure you're like 2 cm above the xiphysternum on the lower half of the sternum. And you're in the midline. Some people say, okay, should I compress from the left or from the right? It doesn't matter. Tell anybody that tells you, you know, that you should compress from the left because the heart is on the left. Your target is not the heart. Your target is the sternum because the sternum is what is going to give you the springboard. You push it down and it comes back up. So you can do it either from the right or from the left. Now, what can you see in the diagram? Positioning. One man is diagonal, the other one is straight. And the difference between two, if you look at the picture very well, you see that the difference is that where the man is correct, he has a good elevation. He's standing on his stool. That's why we prefer to do compressions on the floor so that we can have a good height advantage. You want the upper part of your body to be doing the work, not your forearm and not your hands. If you use your forearms and your hands, your compressions will not be effective and you'll get tired easily. But when you're compressing and you're using your back muscles to do the compressions, your body is doing the compressions, your hand is only transmitting the compressions, it is more effective that way. Remember, we are talking of the unconscious patient, and we have started with the unconscious patient who has no pulse and is not breathing. We say that person is in cardiac arrest, we've gone through checking for response, 
checking for breathing, calling for help, and then now we're talking about chest compressions. All right, next slide. So like I said, you know, before we go into airway, you have to position yourself, have a good height above the patient. You have to be straight. I actually feel like just standing up down to demonstrate what I mean. That's why you need to go for these classes so that you can see it, you can practice it. It's beyond theory, it is practical. So you position yourself very well and then you position your hand very well. Then you push hard and you push fast. And then you minimize interruptions and you allow for chest recoil. So we've talked about compressions. The next thing is airway. How do we manage the airway? I mean, I can talk about this thing for another five hours, but we don't have that time. So there are two basic methods we use. We call it the head tilt chin lift. You lift the head and you lift the chin. You tilt the head upwards and you lift the chin. That makes the tongue to move away from the airway, as you can see in that diagram, so that air can go in. Passive air can go in. Active air can go in. All right. And then the other one is jaw trust. The jaw trust is we use it for those who have, who have suspected spine injury. Trauma patients, and you think this person can have spine injury, you use the jaw trust to open their airway so that you don't dislodge their spine. I don't know whether that is what that man was trying to do in the um, legislative quarters during the session, do a jaw trust. But how do you do a jaw trust when you've not ascertained that the person is unresponsive? So next slide. Okay, I have just about 30 minutes left. So we've talked of how to open the airway. When you open the airway, the next thing is to give breath. And there are three things we use. If you're alone, you can use a pocket mask or face shield. In, in this period of COVID, I won't advise you to do that unless it is a loved one, someone you know personally, someone you live with personally, and you're saying, um, if I get COVID, that's not my problem. I want this person to leave. But at this point, um, I would not advise that routinely. So that we have the bad valve mask. Another name we call it is an ambu bag, which is a trade name. That is where, what you use when you're multiple people, but somehow you can manage to use both if that is um, available to you. Next slide, please. So we use these devices to give breath and um, we'll show. So mouth to mouth. Well, like I said, these things are practically, they are practical demonstrations. So um, it's better practice. So you position the patient at the victim's side you place the mask on the victim's side and then use the bridge of the nose as a guide for correct position. Then you seal the mask. So this is a mouth to mask. So um, next slide, please. So that you see what the mask looks like. Okay. All right. Um, so you see what the mask looks like. So um, this will show you what the mask looks like. But maybe before I end, I will show you what watch the way the hand is placed right sorry um on the person's mouth the mask is placed over the person's face using the bridge of the nose as guide and then there's a nozzle through which you give breath to deliver oxygen to the person's uh, mouth so next so um can we move over to the next please let's 
for the sake of our time. So the other one is the back mass device. And like I said, is what um, is more practical. But these are things that we use to deliver oxygen. You place it over the person's nose and then you give breath. You press it to deliver oxygen. And then you actually connect it to high flow oxygen to deliver oxygen. But when this thing is happening outside where you don't have access to these things, the only thing you can do is if you have a pocket mask, which should be in a first aid box, you can use that. If not, you go ahead and use a mouth-to-mouth. Remember I said, if it's a loved one, that has to be done cautiously. So next slide. Next slide. So we're going to go into the third thing. The, the, we've talked of compressions, airway breathing. So we're talking about the fourth thing, which is called defibrillation. This is something that should be everywhere in our hospitals. It should be in our malls. It should be in our schools. It should be in banks. So that if someone has a cardiac arrest, you just use it. So what is a defibrillator and how is it used? So as soon as possible, please connect the patient to an AED or a defibrillator and if indicated, deliver a shock. So basically, we use the defibrillator to deliver shocks. So in a short while, I'm going to explain to you how it works. So what is an AED? How does it function? Back, please. When do you use an AED? And like I said, how does it function? So an AED is an automated external defibrillator. Automated external defibrillator. You also have the manual defibrillator, which is used in the advanced life support setting, but the AED is the automated external defibrillator. How does it function? What it function is that when someone is in cardiac arrest, there's a rhythm that we call ventricular fibrillation. What it means is that the heart muscles are not in sync. Some are fast, some are slow, some are not beating at all. So everybody's just doing their thing. And because the heart only works as a unit, when all the muscles are not beating at the same time, at the same frequency, we say that the heart is either having an arrhythmia or has, is not fibrillating. So if the heart is fibrillating, it cannot pump blood effectively. So what the AED does is to stun the heart with electricity. The electricity quietens everybody and energizes everybody. Two things, like quietens everybody and energizes everybody. And immediately you start your chest compression again, the muscles, the muscles can now pick up at the same frequency. So it's like when you're in a class and everybody's talking and nobody's talking, you have to tell, please, quiet, please. And once the class becomes quiet, then everybody can, you can now hear yourself. That is what the AED does to stun the heart, deliver energy to it, stun the heart, and with just compression, the electrical activity of the heart can may normalize. So that is how it functions. And how, when do you use an AED? You use an AED for anybody who collapses. Somebody is going to ask me now, what do you do in a setting where you don't have AED? But that is, you should know the right thing. Once someone collapses, I start the AED on the person's part, on the person's body. The AED is simple to use. All you need to do is put it on and follow the voice prompt. It will tell you what to do. It will tell you, check this person's pulse. It will tell you, start compressions. It will tell you, give breaths. That is how the AED works. All right, next slide, please. 
Very simple to use. So what we're trying to say is that every minute that passes, that's what this graph means. Every minute that passes and you waste time using AED, you decrease the person's chances of survival by 10 by, um, by 10% for every minute that passes. It's very important. Very important. Next slide. Okay. So like we said, apply the AED to the patient as soon as it arrives. And if you're multiple rescuers, someone can be doing the chest compressions while the AED is being applied. Remember, we don't want interruptions. Next slide. I'll give you um, an example of one of the cases I managed not so long ago. During this COVID pandemic, the, it was, he's a gardener. He was trying to trim um, some flowers or like cut down some, a tree. And then he fell. He shouted and he fell. So when they brought to my hospital, my first inclination was that this guy must have been, must have been shocked because there were barbed wires there for him to have shouted. So I decided to, when they brought him in, because of the sphere of COVID, we didn't want to resuscitate. But I looked at him, young chap, in his late, term, in early 20s. So we decided to resuscitate. This guy, we checked his monitor, we checked our monitor, and this guy had a ventricular fibrillator, a ventricular fibrillation, sorry. And we had to shock him seven times before we got him back. Seven times. I've never done, I've done shocks like two, three times, but seven times. In fact, at the seventh time, I felt we should give up. And immediately we delivered the seventh shock, his pulse came back. And the guy improved. I could see the guy waking up, opening his eyes. It was actually, it was actually a wonderful feat. So how do we use the AED? The first thing, like I said, is to power it on. Attach the AED parts to the patient's bed chest and connect to the cables. Then the AED will tell you what to do. Like I said, these things are more practical than theoretical. If I talk about it from now to tomorrow, if you get an AED, you still wouldn't know what to do. But at least if you get an AED, You've heard today that I said put it on. First thing you do is to put it on and listen to it. If you're two persons, let one person continue chest compressions while you figure out how to use the AED. I have all those things, but it's something that time won't allow me show you how to use them. I have all of those things there, but I can't show you how to use it right now. So next slide, please. So we have some special considerations. When someone has a hairy chest, when someone is immersed in water, what do you do? These are things that you can learn when you go for a complete BLS class. Hairy chest, because the pads will not fit, you to do some shaving and all that. Next slide, please. So I hope we are gaining something from the lectures. Next slide. All right, so before I go into this, rescue breathing. We're almost, I'm checking my time, we're almost down to the end of the class. So we started by saying when someone collapses, the first thing you need to do is to check if your scene is safe. If your scene is safe, you proceed to check for response, check for breathing, and then check for pulse. And when you do that, you call for help. Remember, this should happen in less than 10 seconds. So we assumed that this person has 
no pulse, is not breathing, and is unresponsive, in which case we say the person is in cardiac arrest. So what do you now do now that you know the person is in cardiac arrest? You start your chest compressions, you open the airway, and then you give breaths. And then fourthly, you defibrillate. So for someone who is, who is unresponsive and who is unconscious and you have recognized that he's in cardiac arrest, the management, whether, wherever you are in the hospital outside is sin safety, recognize that he's in cardiac arrest. The management for those in cardiac arrest is compressions, airway, breathing, and defibrillation. CABD, if you want to add a D to it. Now, we're, what we're talking about is rescue breathing. So for, there are some people who will collapse. But, they have, you check their pulse, they have a pulse, but they are breathing. Sorry, they have a pulse, but they are not breathing. They are not responding. They have a pulse, but they are not breathing or they are gasping. Those people, we say they are in respiratory arrest. Something that will make you remember is like a, a neonate born, and the neonate doesn't cry. But then you see the pulses. You can even see it through the stomach. You see the pulses beating very hard. At that point, we say that that neonate is having respiratory arrest. The child is either not breathing or not breathing well. It also happens to adults. And adults can have the pulse. It may just collapse. When you check it, you see that there's a pulse, but then the person is not breathing well. In that case, what you do for such people is that you give them what we call rescue breaths. That is, in that case, we saw those people like respiratory arrest, and their treatment is rescue breaths. Unlike those who are in cardiac arrest, that what you do is to do compressions, airway, and breathing, otherwise known as cardiopulmonary resuscitation. Cardiopulmonary resuscitation is those in cardiac arrest. While rescue breathing is for those in respiratory arrest, I hope we understand the difference. So if someone collapses and the person has the pulse, don't go and start doing chest compressions. Just give the person breaths. Either you do a mouth-to-mouth -mouth or you use a mouth-to-pocket mask or you use that ambu bag. I hope we understand the difference. And the way you will know that you're giving effective breath is whenever you give the breath, whether it's mouth to mouth, the chest rises. And what you have to do is that every two minutes you have to check your pulse because it's possible that from respiratory arrest, the person will go into cardiac arrest. And if the person goes into cardiac arrest, you're going to start doing chest compression, CPR, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, and then give breaths. But if the, there's a pulse, so... Let me just, I've never thought about this, but let me just say this. So in cardiac arrest, there's a cardiac component, so you do what? CPR. In respiratory arrest, there's no cardiac component, so what you do is PR, pulmonary resuscitation, otherwise known as rescue breathing. So cardiac arrest, CPR, respiratory arrest, PR, or rescue breathing. I hope with that you can remember that. So I've shown you when someone collapses and does not have a pulse, is not breathing, what to do. And I've told you what to do now. When someone collapses, has a pulse, but is not breathing. Now, one thing both of them have in common is that you must recognize which one. Is it that this person is in respiratory arrest or this one is in 
cardiac arrest, you must recognize that. And that is where the power of this training should come into play. Then, there are other situations where the person can have collapse, but pulse will be there. Breathing, the person is breathing. So what do you do? That is covered under first aid. So, for example, somebody that is having a seizure, a convulsion, somebody convulsing, the person has a pulse, the person is breathing, but the person is convulsing. What do you do? Are you going to start giving breath? No. For such people, there is what we call a recovery position. You put them in a recovery position. The reason why you put them and the recovery position is to lie them on the left lateral side. They are all, you can also type it on YouTube, recovery position. You put them on the left lateral. The reason is that if you put them on the left lateral, the tongue will not fall back and the airway will be open. Another thing is that like somebody who is convulsing, if they're having secretions, if they're vomiting, if they're on the left lateral, the, the secretions will all droop out. But if they are lying, you know, supine, the things, the secretions will enter their airway, obstructing their breathing and further worsening their hypoxia. So there's a lot. But it all starts with, record, first of all, recognition. And the way to recognize is check for responsiveness, check for pulse, check for breathing. So if I was the one there, the first thing I would have done in that legislative house is to lie that man on the floor. That's the first thing I would have done. Then I will tap and check for response. If he's responding, I'll check for breathing. If he's breathing, I'll check for pulse. If he has a pulse, if all these things are present, I will just put him in a left lateral position, clear the area for him to get some air, call for help so that we'll move him to the nearest hospital. Remember, I will check for response, check for breathing and pulse, then call for help. When help now comes, we move him, put him in a recovery position until help comes. But if these three things are absent, I will start compressions, I will call for help, and then we'll start compressions, get the defibrillator, get a number by whatever you can get, so that you can take the person out. Now, but if the third uh, instance is, if I, I was checking for response, he's not responding, he's not breathing, but has a pulse, then I won't bother with chest compressions, and I'll just go straight to um, rescue breath. I think um, that summarizes our training today on what to do for an unconscious patient. Like I said, it's something that you need to have a hands-on practice, practical session about. And it's something you need. It's not something that is optional. It's something you need. And I will encourage each and every one of us, those in final year, spend time, get someone to come and organize it for your class. Get mannequins. Don't, it's not a theoretical thing. It's something you will practice with mannequins and then you will get used to it. Thank you guys for having me. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. I hope you were blessed. For more information, you can log on to www.cndnigeria.org.